Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another list episode of Tuesday Night Jaw with me, Jim Smallman, your host for this very podcast on the wonderful Distraction Pieces Network. Uh, how are you? Hope you're all right. My voice is going a little bit because uh, it's the winter, got a bit of a cold, and we had a progress show on Sunday, and I lost my voice because of various things that happened during the course of said show. Um, so I've been a bit busy this week, and I've been busy doing family stuff and work stuff and everything. So this is coming out on a Wednesday. I apologize. It's a little bit late. Um but uh, I still wanted to put a podcast out, and I was driving into Manchester last night um, to do a wonderful gig at a club called XS Malarkey in Manchester, which I've been gigging at since I was a brand new comedian, and now I'm very lucky in that I, I get to close it, which is a big honour for me. Um, and on my way there, I thought of, a, um, based on some stuff that I'm doing at the minute, read between the lines, you probably know what I'm doing, um, some stuff I'm doing at the minute, and um, Survivor Series having just happened and the fact that I love wrestling and I'm thinking about it most of the time I came up with an idea for a list episode that I want you all to play along with Um, so as always, listen to my suggestions and then maybe get involved with your suggestions uh, at Jim Smallman, hashtag Tuesday Night Jaw write them down in your notes on your phone and just send me a screenshot that's probably the easiest thing to do although we have all got 280 characters now it's still not enough, I don't think Um, on a related note, again for something I'm doing, um, if you go back and listen to any of the list episodes, not the ones that have specific pay-per-view matches, so not the best WrestleMania matches, best Survivor Series matches, anything like that, but all the other list episodes, whether it's just me on my own or me as part of a, of a group, um, if you happen to be listening to one and you feel like jotting down what I actually put in those lists and then just messaging me with them, that would be awesome. Because I wouldn't mind going back through and collecting them all. But I'll be honest, I'm a bit busy and I can't stand the sound of my own voice. So if you feel like doing it, sweet. I'd be super grateful. Um, one last little thing before I get the plugs and then telling you what this list episode is. Um, I'm aware a lot of you listened to the roundtable last week and felt it was a bit quiet. Now, not everybody did. Some people found the sound quality was fine. Um, there's a reason it was quiet. It was recorded in the ACAST studio, and the recording they gave me, I had to boost it up a little bit, but essentially it was quite quiet. It wasn't set to a massive volume, as most studios aren't. Now, the reason I couldn't boost it up too much is John, my business partner, John Briley, had a particularly bad cough, and if I boosted the audio up, Every time he coughed, it would have broke your headphones. So that's the main reason it's not boosted up too much. Apologies uh, if you couldn't listen to it on a train or something like that, because it was a bit a bit quiet on whatever system you're choosing to listen to it on. Um, but um, if you do get a chance to find somewhere quiet to have a listen, if you couldn't hear it when you're out and about, then do give it a listen, because it's a dead good roundtable, and it was really nice to do them again. Um, and lesson learned for next time, uh, both boost the audio a little bit more in the studio and do not allow a man on who's coughing his lungs up. Okay, so um, I still think it's listenable. I've listened to it in my car, but I know every every listener's experience. Va- uh, sorry, every listener experience varies. There we go. <clears throat> and I apologise if I cough during the course of this. I'm going to try not to, and I'm going to try and keep it short. Some plugs. Um, this podcast is on the Distraction Pieces Network. Check out everything on the Distraction Pieces Network. It's dead good. That's one thing. Uh, plug number two. 
I co-own Progress Wrestling in London. Um, we have a couple of shows left this year in Sheffield on December the 10th and in London on December the 30th. These are both sold out. Sorry about that. Uh, the next show you'll actually be able to buy a ticket for um, will be our Camden show at the end of January um, in terms of our regular monthly shows. But we do have two rather large special shows on sale at the moment. Uh, we obviously have our show at Wembley on September the 30th, 2018 on sale, which... Um, is looking likely to be the largest independent wrestling show in England ever, which is crazy. So if you want to come along to that, progresswrestling.com, you'll be able to find the link for the tickets to the Wembley show. Um, tickets are £35 for that. All the expensive tickets have gone. That's it. 35 quid for a great wrestling show in Wembley Arena. Um, I've been told that's pretty cheap, so uh, we tried to keep the prices down. We want as many people in as possible. If you've already got a ticket or you can't come along, but you know someone who would be interested, then let them know. I'm going to go on a full PR assault for this show at some point, probably in the spring next year. But wouldn't it be nuts if we could, you know, get five, six, seven thousand people to that show? Wouldn't that be crazy? So, you know, spread the word. I'd be grateful. I know John and Glenn and all our, st- all our staff and all our talent would be grateful if you could spread the word about it. So progresswrestling.com for tickets for that. Also, up until Monday... Um, you can buy weekend tickets for Super Strong Style 16, which is on the first bank holiday weekend in May of 2018 at Alexandra Palace. It's the first time we've done our three-day tournament at Alexandra Palace. It's normally at the ballroom. Um, Weekend tickets are selling very well. Um, It'd be great uh, if we could sell some more. But the reason I'm plugging it now is on Monday, you can only buy day tickets. So you can probably save yourself, I think it's about 10% by buying weekend tickets. So if you think you can come along Get your tickets now, progresswrestling.com, rather than having to buy individual tickets from Monday onwards because we don't handle the ticket selling, so it's a little bit difficult to juggle everything and make it work. So yes, so that's Super Strong Style 16, uh, first bank holiday weekend of May at Alexandra Palace in London, which is going to be pretty awesome. So do come along to that. There are two big shows next year. Oh, we've got a big show in Manchester coming up as well, but that's not on sale yet. So, progresswrestling.com for all that sort of stuff. Demand-progress.com to watch all of our shows. You can watch our last trip to Manchester and our show from this weekend in Camden. We'll be up probably by the weekend. So, And there's loads of other stuff from other companies as well, so check that out. Uh, <clears throat> final plug, my website, jimsmorman.com. I haven't really got anything to sell. I've sold out my, uh, my uh, History of Pro Wrestling show that I'm doing in February in, in Leicester. It's looking very likely I'll be doing some more. It's also looking likely I'll be doing some live podcasts in 2018 as well. Uh, so if there's a particular place you want me to come to, let me know. Um, do bear in mind that it's easier for me to do a tour show and to do a live podcast in really big cities because there's more chance of me selling tickets. So, you know, much as I would love to come to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example of a moderately small town. Um, much as I would love to come to Budley Salterton, um, it's probably easier for me to go to Bristol. I don't know if Budley Salterton's near Bristol. I don't know where it is. I remember it being in a comedic song once. So, you know. So let me plugs. Uh, com for my stuff. You can see where I'm gigging over the next uh, couple of weeks. I'm in Doncaster on Friday. I'm in uh, Stockport on Saturday. Oh, and another little plug. Stockport's peak may uh, remember made me remember uh, Future Shock uh, friends of the show uh, run by Chris Brooker Matt Richards common guest on this show works for them as well uh, they were in a show in Manchester on Sunday uh, which got Jay Lethal and various other cool people on it so if you get a chance if you're around Manchester it's in the city centre as well of Manchester uh, Future Shock uh, I've got a show on Sunday so do check that out if you get a chance uh, search for Future Shock Wrestling on Google and you'll find all their details Good, right, to today's list. You ready? You better be ready, because it's going to be good. So this is how I got the idea. I, I've i been doing some research recently about the history of wrestling. I wonder why that could be. I mean, partly for a stand-up show, but come on, read between the lines, people. And also we have the Survivor Series Roundtable where we answered lots of questions about our dream Survivor Series teams and stuff like that. So what I've decided to put together is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven Survivor Series teams. Each one is from a decade, from the 1950s through to the 10s now, as I like to call this decade. In each team, there are five wrestlers. Now, there's a few rules, because it's a Tuesday night, your list episode. So here's the rules. 
Rule number one, and this is mainly to stop people like Matt Richards and Craig Michael Hall and me myself a little bit from being too hipster about this. Um, whenever you choose a wrestler from a decade, during that decade, they need to have made significant appearances in North America, okay? Ideally in the United States and Canada, okay? So significant appearances in the United States and Canada during that decade, okay? That's important. And then I wanted to break it down into five types of wrestler within that team. You're going to have a technician, someone who's good at the technical side of wrestling can do all that sort of stuff. You're going to have a brawler, someone who's not shy about spilling a little bit of blood, rampaging through the crowd, swinging a chair, stuff like that. You're going to have a big character, so someone that you cannot imagine this decade without because their character was such a huge draw. You're going to have a high flyer, so someone who was not scared of going to the top rope and doing flips and all that cool stuff that I certainly really enjoy. And then you're going to have a captain, and that captain ideally needs to be, for you, the wrestler that sums up that decade. Okay, you got it? I'll run through it for you again. So in each team, from each decade, you will have five wrestlers, all of whom made significant appearances in the United States and Canada during that decade. Okay, so you'll note... There's not as much Japanese stuff in my list as there normally is. Uh, there's no Kenta Kabashi. Spoiler for you there. Um, he's not in the list. Um, so I've not gone nuts. My 90s list, my 90s team is not just five guys from all Japan. Okay, so they need to be people who significantly appeared in the United States and Canada during that decade. You have a technician, a brawler, a big character, a high flyer, and your team captain. And... Once you've chosen someone for a decade, they can't be in a different decade team. So essentially, you're coming up with seven sets of five wrestlers that are completely different each time. Okay, so I'll do the 50s first. Now, some of you are listen to this bit now and go to the 50s, but I don't know anyone from the 50s. And that might be the case. But hopefully, I'm going to tell you some stuff about wrestlers from the 1950s that you're going to go, oh, that's quite interesting. Maybe I'll go and read up on them a bit. I mean, for years, I've spent most of my time reading uh the Wrestling Observer, uh, in particular Dave Meltzer's obituaries whenever a wrestler passes away, are amazing. Um, the, the most recent one I, I can point you to is the, the Bobby Heenan one, which was to, uh, was over a couple of editions of The Observer and was just wonderful. Um, <clears throat> and that's how I've learned about a lot of wrestlers from the 1950s in particular and the 1960s is through uh, Dave Meltzer's obituaries. They're fantastic. I believe there's a, a book you can get with a collection of them in, but I've been rereading archived observers recently um also from reading people's autobiographies i've learned a lot and sometimes if i'm in a hotel room and i'm bored and i can't sleep which is often i'll just sit and read through wikipedia and just try and learn as much as possible about wrestling because i've loved it for decades and i want to try and learn as much as possible i'm not saying i know everything um because i don't and there's always going to be someone who tells me i've got something wrong and that's fine um, but hopefully these are just a few things that you'll look at and go, well, that's quite interesting. So the 1950s, this is my team from the 50s. The other thing I'd say before I get into my list as well, where I've tried to give, you know, technician, brawler, big character, high flyer, stuff like that. Um, it's not that prescriptive. You know, it, 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 there'll be some people, I'll, I'll put someone in the technician category and they go, well, I think you'll find this person is a better technician. Well, they probably are, but it's just how I perceive People, when I'm putting my team together, I'm making it work for myself. And you can do the same, okay? So remember the rules. Um, uh, remember what you need to put in each team. Uh, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 0s, 10s. <clears throat> and, very importantly, um, make sure you tweet me all this. So write them all down in the, in the notes on your phone or whatever you're going to do. Screenshot it. Send it to me. At Jim Smallman. Hashtag Tuesday Night Jaw. Awesome. Right. 1950s. Here's my 1950s team. <clears throat> uh, my technician uh, is Pat O'Connor. Uh, he was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion uh, towards the end of the 1950s. Very good tag team wrestler as well. Um, had a very good amateur background. Um, and I believe, and I could be wrong, someone's going to tell me I'm wrong. I believe was the first foreign-born NWA World Heavyweight Champion. As in not born in the United States. Someone's going to tell me I'm wrong. I mean, obviously, I mean the NWA that was set up uh, in the late 1940s 
uh, which is the National Wrestling Alliance, which, of course, the lineage... Tim Storm is currently the uh, NWA champion. Um, not the National Wrestling Association, which I found out through reading, um, was a- another thing that was uh, kind of governed wrestling in the same way that boxing federations kind of govern it, just making sure the rules and that were, were in place. So, <clears throat> um, so yeah, So I don't. I, I, someone's going to correct me on that. But um, because Pat O'Connor was from New Zealand and then moved to Canada and then to the United States... Um, who would be my choice there? Um, uh, I, I read up about the fact that when he was champion, um, one of the promoters, one of the NWA affiliate promoters in Chicago, wasn't keen on him, um, so didn't particularly want to book him. And uh, when he did eventually book him, sold out uh, the the venue that he was put in, record ticket sales for an NWA title defense. So clearly, you know, proved his point. Uh, and, and was pretty decent. And the person that he was defending the title against was a wrestler called Yukon Eric, which is going to come up with my brawler suggestion. Yukon Eric's not the suggestion um, that I'm going to choose for my brawler from the 1950s. Um, I'm choosing Killer Kowalski, who was a decent technical wrestler. Most people were back in the 1950s. Um, but Yukon Eric features uh, massively in, in the incident that helps underline his name. A lot of you will be aware of this. Uh, Killer Kowalski... Uh, is the man who trained Triple H and Kofi Kingston and Eddie Edwards and Perry Saturn. And uh, I didn't, I found this out the other week, was a vegan back when no one was a vegan, which is, because I know every wrestler now is a vegan, but back in the day, he was one of very few, would travel on his own, was a quiet man, um, didn't smoke, didn't drink, which was very, really made him stand out of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but he was called Killer Kowalski. The reason he was called Killer Kowalski was it was his standard nickname. But he managed to underline the nickname um, with one incident when wrestling the man known as Yukon Eric. Um, so he delivered a knee drop to Yukon Eric and Yukon Eric's ear fell off, which is pretty radical. <laughs> so Yukon Eric, as was the, the way at the time, because people were used to grappling for real, um, he had cauliflower ears, which um, if you look at any wrestler that's into mixed martial arts to any degree. So Matt Riddle's got cauliflower ears, Jack Gallagher's got cauliflower ears, <clears throat> just from constantly, you know, having them moved around, it, it creates calcification. Now, Yukon Eric's ears were so cauliflowered that when Killer Kowalski did the knee drop, he sort of hit it, his knee slid against it, and his ear just fell off. And the referee picked the ear up, and everyone lost their minds because, oh, he's such a killer, he's managed to knock his ear off. Then... On top of that, goes to visit Eric in hospital because they're really mates. Um, and while they're there, there's a journalist there and he manages to write about the fact that he's seen Kowalski laughing his head off whilst Eric looks dead set, dead upset about it. And that's not really what happened. What happened was Kowalski and Eric were having a laugh about it because Kowalski made a joke about how stupid he looked and they were friends. They both laughed. But the journalist only reported about Kowalski doing it. So then it was in all the papers and it made him seem even more of a killer. So there you go. Um, and he was never far away from controversy and sort of incidents like that since. And he, and he was a big dude as well for the time. So big, intimidating sort of brawler character. <clears throat> My big character, I don't think you can name wrestlers from the 1950s without choosing this person because he's the reason that television exploded with wrestling in the way that it did. Um, wrestling was on uh, network television. It's on network television in the States now. But in the 50s, it was on network television from pretty much the inception of the NWA and television up until the mid-50s. And then it became regional again until, I think, Saturday night's main event in 1984. That's a long time for it to not be on every single television uh, in the country. And one of the one of the wrestlers that benefited from this the most was Gorgeous George. Now, I have to choose him from the 1950s because he only lived until 1962. He was a hard-drinking, hard-living dude who had quite a lot of problems. However, he was the first really massive character, one of the highest earners in wrestling history if you sort of prorate it to how much he was earning then and what's that was, what that's actually worth now. He was earning like $100,000 a year in the 1950s, which is a ludicrous amount of money when you sort of prorate it up. Um, was one of the first sort of arrogant preening heels that you imagine that we see so much of now, but is really, you know, back then was genuinely out of nowhere. 
a little bit effeminate despite being a genuinely tough guy as well so um, I think you can't ever put one of these lists together without having gorgeous George on it um, surprisingly he was never NWA world heavyweight champion um, but spent most of his time wrestling in California where he was super over so um, that's who I would choose um, I wonder if anyone he used to give out bobby pins because he had long blonde hair so he used to have hairpins like gold plated hairpins he'd give out to the crowd can't imagine anyone doing that now Wrestling's the way it is. If you were going to give someone a hairpin, you'd want at least £10 back for it, wouldn't you? That's how it works. You've got to look after yourself. My high flyer from the 1950s um, is Edouard Carpentier, um, the first man to use uh, head scissors, popularised top rope moves, uh, and so on for great, to great effect. Um, fantastic French-Canadian uh, competitor. Was another man who managed to be NWA champion during the course of the 50s. Not for too long, because... For most of the 1950s, my team captain uh, was NWA world champion, and that is the one and only Lou Thez. Um, if you only know who Lou Thez is because of Steve Austin's Lou Thez Press, then go and, go and read about him. Read his book as well, um, his, his autobiography. I don't know if it's an autobiography or if he had some help with it, but it's really good because he had opinions on a lot of people. He was still around wrestling. Um, I think he was still doing the odd appearance in Japan up until the sort of 90s um, and was arguably the reason that NWA was successful he was the second ever champion um, held it for a heck of a long time the longest combined reigns out of anyone um, who's ever been champion of NWA and also he's the reason I know this is focusing on the United States and Canada but he's the reason that wrestling exploded in Japan because he was willing to go over and have time limit draws with wrestlers like Ricky Dozan um, in order to, to establish the product there and establish NWA partnerships. He was the reason that every wrestling promoter wanted to be part of the NWA because then if you were part of the NWA, once a year maybe, you'd get Luthez come in and take on your local champion uh, and go the time limit draw with him. And then everyone would be established and everyone would be set. So Luthez is my team captain. So my 50s team, Pat O'Connor, Killer Kowalski, Gorgeous George, Edouard Carpentier, and Lou Thez to the 60s 1960s is a weird one because the NWA um, had had success in the 1960s but it had people and then uh, lost it lost certain territory so AWA broke off from it WWWF what we now know as WWE broke off from it um, and it made it a little bit difficult. Choosing my technician is hard as well because a lot of wrestlers were very good technicians, but it doesn't necessarily mean they were massively interesting. Vern Gagne, who uh, founded AWA and was AWA champion for pretty much all of the 1960s, was not the most interesting wrestler in the world. Oh, I'm not lying. <laughs> um, so he wasn't going to be my choice. Um I've already chosen Luthez, who was NWA world champion for quite a lot of the 60s, so I can't choose him. Um, so I've chosen the man who won the NWA championship in 1969. Now, he was, he don't just come NWA champion overnight, so he was established by the mid 60s. And that's Dory Funk Jr., son of Dory Funk Sr., who ran the NWA affiliate territory in Amarillo, Texas, and the brother, of course, of Terry Funk. Um, Became the NWA champion, held it for, I think, four years, I want to say, from 1969 into the early 70s. Uh, invented moves like the Texas Cloverleaf as well, which I love knowing that a certain wrestler invented a move. So, because it is me thinking Dean Malenko invented the Cloverleaf. He didn't. It was Dory Funk Jr. So, Dory Funk Jr. is my 1960s technician in my team. My brawler, there was a lot more brawlers at the time. Lots of uh, foreign terrors, as they were known. So... Uh, lots of people with uh, a foreign gimmick. Uh, people like uh, Ivan Koloff, uh, the Sheik started, uh, he was around before the 1960s, but started becoming really popular in his territory in Detroit in the 60s. Um, but the person I've chosen is Freddie Blassie. Um, because you know you've got a commitment to making your opponents bleed if you're willing to file your teeth to a point in order to bite, bite your opponent's forehead. It's not something you could ever do these days, is it? Um, he was a huge star in California in the 60s. Um, he, in particular, uh, was also a, a big star in Japan. And again, I know we're not focusing on 
on, on Japan for this. It's more US and Canada. But there's stories about the first time he wrestled Ricky Dozan on television in Japan. Uh, he made him bleed so badly and gave him such a beating. Even though Ricky Dozan still won, he gave him such a beating that the television network reported that people viewing it, there was several people had heart attacks while viewing it and a couple of people died. And I don't know if it's all become an urban legend now, but it still sort of adds fuel to the flame of what sort of person Freddie Blassie was. Um, then went on to be a fantastic manager and just a great personality in general. Uh, and also the man who invented the phrase pencil neck geek, which <clears throat> I still don't really know what that means, but you know, it's still pretty cool. Hmm. My big character from the 1960s is the reason, is one of the reasons that WWE became a thing. And that is the nature boy, the original nature boy, Buddy Rogers. Um, Called the Nature Boy, it was a, an extension of, of his original nickname, which was all to do with the fact that he bleached his hair. It was a massive draw, a huge draw, and was NWA champion um, going into the 1960s. Uh, I think 61, 63, I want to say. Um, and he lost his NWA title to Luthez. The problem is, is it was only over one fall. Matches always used to be two out of three falls back then. It was only over one fall and uh, Vince McMahon Sr. and Tootsmont, his business partner, they kind of wanted to break away from the NWA anyway and saw this as their opportunity. So they didn't acknowledge, they were very good friends with Buddy Rogers, who was a big draw for them. Um, he was very big in the Northeast and in Chicago. So they decided that they didn't acknowledge that Luthez was... Um, they didn't acknowledge that Luthez was the champion. They thought Buddy Rogers was still the champion, so they broke away. They became the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And then uh, a couple of months after that happened, they had a fictional tournament in Rio de Janeiro where um, <laughs> where Buddy Rogers became their champion, um, beating someone else on my Survivor Series team in the final. Now, um, he didn't hold the title for long because the poor bloke had a heart attack about three weeks after that and then dropped the title to someone else on my team um, but um, he was known for being a massive draw he was still around wrestling for the rest of his life just never to the point that he was in the early 60s where he was such a mega 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 draw mainly just by being a dick like an absolute dick to everybody um, you know to his opponents had so many catchphrases um, was just was just really really good at what he did and and people wanted to see him get hurt all of the time so you know you should always want to pay to see someone either win or see someone lose and everyone wanted to pay to see him lose um, so he's my big character my high flyer and again 50s and 60s not loads of high flyers so you kind of have to choose people who innovated a style so I've chosen Antonino Rocca um, who Buddy Rogers beat in the mysterious, uh, mythical, never-really-happened tournament final in Rio de Janeiro. I don't think Rocker was even in uh, WWF at the time. I think he uh, had fallen out with them a little bit. But um, Rocker was born in Italy and then grew up in Argentina and played a lot of football and rugby and various other sports and brought a completely different style to wrestling. Was was very balletic in what he chose to do, Was uh, bought kind of a Latin influence uh, from growing up in South America to everything that he did, um, uh, lots of sort of acrobatic kicks and using the top rope and stuff like that. Um, and also, and this is quite a cool little fact about him, in 1962, he was on the front cover of a Superman comic, Fighting Superman. So, you know, you know you're over if you're getting to be fighting Superman. So, Rock is my high flyer. And then my team captain as the uh, quintessential wrestler from the 1960s. If this was NWA leaning, it'd be Luthez because he was NWA champion for quite a lot of the 1960s. Um, or it could be Vern Gagne if uh, I really liked incredibly boring amateur wrestling from, from the 1950s and 1960s. But it isn't. Uh, it's Bruno Sammartino, seven-year run as WWF champion. Um, you know, held it for from sort of four weeks after WWF uh, crowned their first champion um, to the 70s. So you, I don't really think you can choose anyone else. A massive, massive draw in, the time, in his time. Routinely selling out Madison Square Garden. Huge following in New York. Huge following in Pittsburgh, which is where he grew up after uh, emigrating from Italy. Um, and a modern day superhero. Um, 
WWF up until up until pretty much the nineties kind of specialised much more than NWA in having uh, babyface champions and he was the quintessential one because you know he held title for seven years here and then for four years in the 1970s as well so um, it's very hard to look beyond Bruno uh, I'm very happy that Bruno is now in the Hall of Fame because for a long time that didn't look like it was going to happen uh, because he fell out with WWE um, but it's cool that it, everything's all seems to have been fixed now so um, yeah I don't think you can look beyond anyone who's pretty much his seven year run as a champion set up a company for success for the for the next few decades. So, yeah, he's my choice. So my 60s team, Dory Funk Jr., Freddie Blassie, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, Antonino Rocca, and Bruno Sammartino. Okay, on to the 70s. My 70s amateur choice, uh, amateur choice, sorry, my 70s uh, technician choice, probably a giveaway about how I've approached this, is Bob Backlund. Uh, became WWF champion uh, in the late 1970s, held it for a long time, um, Had was trained by uh, Eddie Sharkey, who trained a lot of very, very talented wrestlers. Um, started out in AWA, moved around the United States a little bit, had a decent run in Japan, um, managed while he was uh, the champion of, of what now is the WWE, managed to have unification matches with... NWA champions in Harley Race and in Ric Flair and both times obviously they went to hour long draws no one's losing there are they so I think you have to go very far to sort of uh, it's very difficult to look beyond Bob Backlund I mean one name that did pop into my head was someone who was NWA champion during the 1970s and again had a very good amateur background and that's Jack Briscoe um, but Bob Backlund was my choice my brawler choice is based purely on the fact that he had the best punches in wrestling, as uh, as told by by Mick Foley repeatedly in his autobiographies. So my choice is someone else who again held uh, a title for a long time, held the NWA title for several years during the course of the 1970s, and that is Terry Funk. Um, it's worth mentioning as well. I, I mentioned Jack Briscoe, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, as the Briscoe brothers were a tag team. Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr., who were both former NWA champions, um, uh, they um, they had a, a tag team together, and those guys feuded all over the world for about fifteen years. <laughs> it, it's amazing how many different places they took that around. Um, and if you think about it, there's some star power in there as well. The Briscoes were great. I mean, the the, the first couple of Starcades are on the WWE Network, and the Briscoes are having tag matches on those still. Um, you know, and they they. Well, they, they weren't super old, but they were well into. They would have been well into their forties, maybe early fifties at the time. Um, so um, Terry Funk, I don't think it's it's based partly on his influence in wrestling in the nineteen seventies, where he was a huge draw for NWA. He was a huge draw down in Florida, uh, so for Florida Championship Wrestling, he was sorry, Championship Wrestling from Florida CWF, which was an NWA affiliate. Um, so he was a huge draw in Florida, which I, I believe is where he won his NWA title. I think he won it in Miami um, and obviously managed to be a huge draw in Japan uh, as well which he kept up pretty much for the entirety of his career um, of course Terry Funk has retired 242 times um, but I, I don't think I don't think you go without choosing him if it wasn't because there's someone so obvious to choose for the 1990s Funk would have been a good choice for best brawler then as well or maybe the 80s but I've chosen other people then my big character from the 70s. It was a choice between this man and superstar Billy Graham. Superstar Billy Graham was WWF champion for a year um, in the uh, the late 70s. He was the first wrestler that looked like wrestlers in the 80s. In that he had a tan and he'd done a few steroids and he was a big, muscly dude. Most wrestlers looked strong. They looked like they could fight, but he looked different. It's a bit like standing someone like late 1990s Scott Steiner next to any other wrestler. It, it was that level of difference. Plus, superstar Billy Graham could talk. He could talk, he could get crowds to hate him. He was a fantastic character from that point of view. But I can't choose him as my big character as long as Dusty Rhodes has ever existed. 
Um, you know, whether you're one of these people who, who chooses to dislike Dusty because of his um, the, the way that he booked wrestling in, in the, the sort of the 80s and early 90s, um, I, I don't care how he booked wrestling because that's in the past. What I do care about is the fact that Dusty Rhodes had a tremendous influence over so many people, was an amazing talker despite being a man who had a speech impediment and was tremendously beloved and carried himself like a superstar despite if we're honest, not looking like a superstar. Superstar Billy Graham did look exactly that. Dusty Rhodes, when he talked about being a common man, it, it, it really kind of was that thing. It, he, he really was saying what he was. And, and I recommend everybody either reads or... Um, I listened to the audiobook version of Dusty's autobiography. It was a bit weird because Dusty was alive when it came out and he didn't read it, which makes me sad. Um, I've... I've met I've met Dustin Rhodes a couple of times and he's a he's a nice guy and I'm very sad that I never got to meet Dusty Rhodes because just his voice and knowing his passion for, for people doing promos and his passion for wrestling and we talked about war games last week and obviously he was involved in the invention of that. So um <clears throat> I think um Dusty Rhodes promo skills and, and just the love that fans had for him when he you know, when he overcame the odds, I think I'm going to choose him in my 1970s guy. Mainly because, as you'll see in a minute, it's a bit difficult not to choose a certain character for the 80s. My high flyer from the 70s uh, is not an American, um, but did have a good run in the uh, WWF during the mid-1970s. Um, also uh, wrestled for several other sort of upstart promotions during the 1970s and NWA affiliates as well. Um, and that's Mill Mascaris. Now, his success in the United States paved way for other luchadors, other masked wrestlers from Mexico, because he could adopt a little bit more of a hybrid style. If you watch Lucha Libre, I don't mean Lucha, don't watch Lucha Underground, because that's not Lucha Libre. It's, it's wonderful, Lucha Underground, but it's not, strictly speaking, traditional Lucha Libre. You go back and watch an old uh, El Santo match, or Blue Demon, or, or someone like that, it's very slow and it's very choreographed. It's fun to watch, but it's not. It, it, it's it feels quite alien sometimes. A, a great example I would use to describe this is Flamita, who appeared in Progress's Super Strong Style sixteen this year and appeared in Battle of Los Angeles for PWG this year. He wrestles in Mexico where he lives, and he also wrestles in J Japan for Dragon Gate. If you watch his Japanese matches. He hits harder. Everything he does is at twice the speed. When he's back in Mexico, it's slowed down because that's the style in Mexico. Um, so I think for a luchador to really be able to make it in the United States, they have to offer something a bit different and they have to adapt their game to make it fit with an American audience. And that's precisely what Mil Mascaris did. Um, it's the same with any wrestler. So wrestlers from this country who demonstrate a very British style like William Regal, going to the United States or going to Japan and getting that style over, that's a challenge. And when you crack it, it means brilliant because what you've probably done is you've taken what you learned in your style and you've adapted it a little bit and managed to make it so it works around what, um, what people like in that country that you've moved to. I think Mil Mascaris did that, did that well and, and is, is still around and still making appearances and is, of course, in the WWE Hall of Fame now as well. So he's my captain from the 1970s. The captain of the ship... For the 1970s. Well, that would be Harley Race. Um, a man who liked to bust people's eyebrows by just punching them above the eye. Uh, that was my doorbell, by the way. No idea who it is. Uh, I let my wife answer. Um, so he was the premier champ of the 1970s uh, when it came to the NWA. He had a little run uh, as NWA World Heavyweight Champion between Dory Funk Jr., and Jack Briscoe, I think mainly because Dory Funk didn't want to lose his title to Jack Briscoe and he'd been in an accident and there's all kinds of shenanigans and, and stuff like that around it. So um, I think that um, that was seen as a sort of test for him. He was champion for, I think, two or three months and then uh, had much longer runs punctuated with, you know, dropping the title every now and again to, to Giant Baba over in Old Japan and stuff like that just for a few days. And it was pretty much Harley until Ric Flair caught on in the 1980s um, I know people lots of wrestlers like to talk about Harley Race in terms of what a legend he is and apparently his barbecues and stuff like that a stuff of legend um, but I was watching 
was watching an old Starcade recently and, and was just really fascinated with how he spoke and his tone of voice and how calm he was. And then when you know how hard he was as well, properly tough as nails. So I, I think it's um, it's always going to be Harley for my my team captain from the 1970s, the premier NWA champ of the 70s. So my 70s team, Bob Backlund, Terry Funk, Dusty Rhodes, Mill Mascaris, Harley Race. Good teams. On to the 80s. Now, my technician, this was hard for me because a lot of the technicians I wanted to choose um, either were not massively used in the United States and Canada at this time or could have fit into another category quite easily or um, it would have been better to use them later on in maybe maybe their best body of work was in the 1990s. So my technician that I've chosen is Kurt Hennig. He became Mr. Perfect towards the end of the 80s. I get that. But was fantastic when he was in the AWA um, uh, before he moved to WWE. No, it wasn't WWF, I got so used to saying. Before he moved to WWF in the end of the 80s, he, Kurt Hennig was, was fantastic. Um, and, and you know a huge star in AWA alongside wrestlers like Rick Martello again very good technician um, but and you're sitting there now going why haven't you chosen Bret Hart well Bret Hart was still in the tag team for pretty much most of the 80s or he was undercard in WWF so I wasn't going to choose Bret Hart could have been Dynamite Kid I could have chosen this point but some people might say again he was in the tag team a lot but he wrestled in Calgary a lot in the early 80s um, so it could have been Dynamite Kid but Kurt Hennig is who I'm choosing for the 80s technician. My brawler, easy choice, um, because the uh, Wrestling Observer's Award for Best Brawler of the Year is named after him, and he died in this decade, um, and he's the best brawler ever, ever, and that'll be Bruiser Brody. Um, I don't think... Most of my Bruiser Brody experience is from watching him in... Uh, in in Japan, but he was still certainly around the US uh, during the course of the 1980s. Um, another wrestler that popped into my head when I was when I was putting this together was Bad News Brown, who was Bad News Allen in Canada. But again, having seen some stuff and read about what he was like up in Canada, because he was a legitimate hard guy with a judo background, uh, I could have popped him in. Dynamite Kid could also be considered a best brawler. Um, Terry Funk, obviously, I named in the 70s. So um, I think I think Brody was always always going to win it. One of the most uh, uh, distinctive wrestlers. I was I found this weird. I watched I was watching old WWF the other day and watched the Berserker, uh, and also the um, the you remember the the Blue Twins, which was Ron and Don Harris, but with big hair and big beards. And how often people tried to go back to the Bruiser Brody look to try and recreate it. And, and never getting it quite exactly the same as Brody managed to make it. So um, it, it's such a shame that he died in the way that he did, being murdered while he was in Puerto Rico after falling out with a fellow wrestler slash promoter who got away with it. So um, yeah, that's one of the reasons that I think the Observer Award is named after uh, Bruiser Brody. But, um, but yeah, Bruiser Brody, um, probably the hardest man in the world ever to be called Frank. Someone's going to point out there's a harder man called Frank now. Frank Bruno. Frank Shamrock. All right, maybe not. But he was called Frank. Big character from the 1980s. This one wasn't hard. It's Hulk Hogan. Because, so I've discussed this a few times on the podcast. I'm not a huge fan of Hulk Hogan. Um, I I wasn't when I was a kid. Um, I I just wasn't. I, I, I didn't. I didn't care for him in the same way I didn't care for Big Daddy when I started watching World of Sport. I, I, I always wanted to watch people who had interesting high-flying high or fast-paced and hard-hitting matches and Hulk Hogan was it just never appealed to me. Maybe it's because I'm British. I know that a lot of his appeal was, was much more American than... Um, uh, uh, much more pointed at Americans than it would have been pointed at, you know, little me uh, when I'm sort of 10 years old. Um but I can't put this list together and choose the biggest character from the decade and it not be Hulk Hogan, because it was. I mean, there were other characters that you could have potentially dropped in. Randy Savage is, is a really obvious choice. Jerry Lawler would be a really good choice as well for his work in Memphis when he was you know, the biggest star in Memphis, full stop, in music or anything. Just Jerry Lawler was huge. Um, you could choose Kerry Von Erich 
from Texas um, because he had an NWA title and only lasted a couple of weeks, I think, but was it was you know seen as a walking god among men. But I don't think anyone quite comes. You certainly you can't argue with the, the pulling power of him. So Hulk Hogan is my choice for big character of the 1980s. Then my high flyer, um, because this man had matches in Madison Square Garden, I can choose him. Uh, and those matches with Dynamite Kid blew people's minds and made people realise that wrestling possibly wasn't going to be what they've been used to for the last few years. And that's Tiger Mask, the original Tiger Mask of so Sayama, the original Tiger Mask, um, not Tiger Mask 2, who is Misawa. Um, also great, but the original Tiger Mask. Um, you can easily find the videos online of... Uh, the original Tiger Mask against Dynamite Kid in Madison Square Garden. These matches are like seven or eight minutes long and the audience do not know what to do with them. They are mind-blowingly good. <clears throat> so it, it, you can't, I don't think you can choose a high fly from the 80s and it not be Tiger Mask. And he fits me rules because he was appearing fairly regularly in America during the 80s. And then, so who's my team captain for the 80s? Who do I think sums up wrestling in the 1980s for me? Well, it's Ric Flair. Um, Ric Flair, champion, NWA world champion for most of the 1980s. Had feuds, amazing feuds, with Terry Funk, with Sting, with Ricky Steamboat, with Barry Windham, um, with Dusty Rhodes. Uh, invented the Four Horsemen. Um, pretty much carried the NWA on his back. Uh, was the reason that WCW managed to get set up and be a success in the, in the initial sort of uh, years. And in the early 90s, when he moved to, to WWE, massively affected their business, which shows you what a big draw it was. So Ric Flair has to, he's, you know, I think he says, uh, says to be the man, you have to beat the man. Well, he is the man. He, you know, I don't think you can choose anyone else, really. Uh, I mean, a lot of you, when you put your list together, you're probably going to choose Hulk Hogan, and I'm fine with that. It's just I chose Ric Flair because my own wrestling sensibilities say I want more of a wrestler than Hulk Hogan ever was so 1980s team Kurt Hennig Bruiser Brody Hulk Hogan Tiger Mask Ric Flair three left let's do the 90s so <clears throat> my technician and some of you might have put him under high flyers some of you might have put him under character um, but I'm putting Eddie Guerrero there now in the 90s I could have chosen as technician I could have chosen Either of, of the heart, the more prominent Hart brothers, I could have chosen Owen, I could have chosen Brett. I love Brett Hart and I loved Owen Hart, but I preferred Owen and I just, I don't think I could have really, I could have really sort of gone for um, anyone else. I could easily also put Shawn Michaels in here. Uh, I could have put uh, Dean Malenko in there, even though he wasn't a huge star, he was certainly one of the best technicians. I could have put, could have put Chris Benoit in there, um, but instead... I have chosen Eddie Guerrero. The reason being, uh, first of all, he's one of my all-time favourites, which you'll be very aware of if you listen to this podcast a lot. His stuff in WCW was wonderful. Um, you know, he had so many great matches in the sort of uh, the, the last three or four years of the 90s in WCW. His stuff in ECW was absolutely amazing as well. Um, and his stuff with... Uh, Art Bar as Los Gringos Locos in AAA is beyond wonderful. So uh, I, I can't stress enough how great Eddie was in the 90s. Um, if you're just basing it off seeing him in a couple of WCW things and then signing with WWE, that's not enough. Um, he was amazing. He was absolutely on fire for a good seven or eight years of the 1990s. So Eddie Guerrero is my technician choice. Could have been Bret Hart, could have been Owen Hart, could have been Chris Benoit, could have been Shawn Michaels. It's a really hard one to choose in the 90s, but Eddie Guerrero is who I chose. My brawler. If, you, if you're choosing anyone other than this man, then you're wrong. Like, I, There's bound to be someone who's going to say, New Jack, and that's fine. I've met New Jack. He's terrifying. It's cool. Um, but uh, the choice is uh, Mick Foley. Because in the 1990s, he worked under three different characters. He worked for WCW, ECW, WWE, he did death matches in Japan. He worked in all Japan and broke Johnny Ace's arm and never got booked again. Um, he did everything. He was Cactus Jack in WCW. 
He remained Cactus Jack for most of the decade, then became Mankind, a, a gimmick he didn't think he'd get over, got that gimmick over, did amazing stuff with The Undertaker, got thrown off the roof of Hell in a Cell, which is the thing that got me back into wrestling and the reason he's tattooed on my arm, um, then messed around and got to be Dude Love uh, and got to be Cactus Jack again and got to be Mick Foley himself in, in one match on Raw against Terry Funk. Um, but he did everything in the 90s. Won the WWF World Title, um, uh, my favourite one of his matches is of course slightly in the noughties um, but you've got to choose Mick Foley for this there's no one there's no one even close big character um, a man who came from nothing and and just the, a fake smile and trying to show fire that didn't seem genuine to being the biggest star in the world and having the best gimmick in the world um, and that's The Rock I know again The Rock did a lot in the in, in the 2000s but the 90s is when he really caught on for me and him in sort of 98, 99 oh so good so good so funny and um, just can't see me choosing anyone else so and now he's of course the biggest star in the world highest paid star in Hollywood um, you know just absolutely amazing but go back and watch was it Survivor Series 96 or 97 that was at, at Madison Square Garden 96 wasn't it because 97 was of course in um, in, uh, in Montreal um, but go and watch the 1996 Survivor Series and watch Rocky Maivia making his pay-per-view debut and you can just hear New Yorkers going no he's not for us to go from that to reinventing yourself to having the best gimmick like he did it just and all it was was just him being a bit of a dick um I cannot stress how, how, how great The Rock was and how important he was um, in terms of the, the Attitude Era. So The Rock is my big character for my 90s team. And then my high flyer. Um, should be no surprise to anybody because uh, go and watch WCW, go and watch ECW, go and watch AAA. Um, go and watch any time he wrestled psychosis during the course of the 1990s and you will definitely pick Rey Mysterio Jr. as your high flyer. I mean, there was other people that I put in my head, like I know Justin, Justin Liger did a lot of stuff in WCW in the 90s and Brian Pillman's feud with him was wonderful. Um, but I don't think I don't think anything comes close to Rey Mysterio. He, he revolutionised what we now know of, um, of high-flying wrestling and, and Lucha Libre and, and taking it to the next sort of extreme. And Psychosis deserves credit for this as well because Psychosis was brilliant at it. Juventud Herrera was brilliant at it. Like I say, Eddie Guerrero being involved in that was cool as well. Um, and even people like Chris Jericho was more of a high flyer in the 90s. Um, could have been on this, but nah. Rey Mysterio Jr. Every day of the week goes into my list. And then, uh, my captain, my captain of my team is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Absolutely has to be him. Biggest star of the 1990s. The one person I think everyone thinks of when they think of wrestling in the 1990s. Um, involved in so many good matches in the 90s not just when he was Stone Cold but also when he was Stunning Steve and when he was in the Hollywood Blondes uh, with Brian Pillman so always going to be Steve Austin absolutely uh, got to be him so Steve Austin is my captain so my 90s team is Eddie Guerrero Mick Foley The Rock Rey Mysterio Jr and Stone Cold Steve Austin it gets a bit harder when we get to the noughties because in the noughties, I still watched WWE, but I became a lot more obsessed with independent wrestling, one company in particular, in Ring of Honor. So you're going to see a bit of an influence from that in my team from the noughties. Um, also because quite a lot of my favourite WWE stars from the noughties um, have kind of already been in other lists. So I've had to choose differently. So my technician. My technician of choice is... Uh, Brian Danielson, surprise no one there. Um, uh, he's probably my favourite technical wrestler ever. Just I think his body of work in Ring of Honor was wonderful. His body of work in WWE is wonderful, and um, I'm glad he still has a job there. And you know, I don't know how I feel if he go back to wrestling, knowing what I know about his injuries from what I've read on the internet. So I think it's it's hard to look beyond Brian Danielson. Um, one of the people that Ring of Honor was built around, and just. So good, so good at everything that he did. My brawler, um, and again, it's loose, 
loosely put because some people would look at him and go, well, actually, he's a bit of a technician. Um, but I'm choosing Samoa Joe for this, again, because of my Ring of Honor obsession in the noughties. Um, also for his IWA Mid-South match with Necro Butcher, where he, they just murder each other. You can't choose someone... Um, you can't suggest someone for brawling and um, and not see a match like that. It's crazy. His entire Ring of Honor run was, I think, the, I think he was the first champion that really put them on the map massively. Um, and then did great stuff in TNA as well. Um, and of course, he's now in um, in WWE, which is awesome. But um, but yeah, Joe, just awesome. My big character. Now, this is someone that shouldn't necessarily have been a big character and shouldn't have had the personality that he did, but managed to get it over in a way that surprised me and then reinvented himself a couple of times and could also have been my technician. Um, and that's Kurt Angle. Now... When he first debuted, he showed glimpses of his personality. Like, remember when Taz choked him out at Royal Rumble 2000? Then he insists, while he was, like, semi-conscious, that he didn't actually lose because he didn't tap out, he passed out, and all that sort of stuff. And then you sort of flash forward to him wearing a tiny cowboy hat. And then the ECW version of him where he, you know, put a black gum shield in and took himself a bit serious, more seriously. And then he was in TNA, and he'd done so much stuff. Uh, Kurt Angle, of course, he's he's back there now and appeared at um, appeared at Survivor Series, but I think his body of work in the noughties had so many brilliant matches that um, I've got to choose him. So Kurt Angle goes in for my noughties suggestion. My high flyer is someone who still flies, but you probably wouldn't have chosen him as a high flyer. But in the noughties, it was for me it was difficult to pick out anyone who who my favorite wrestler from from Mexico at the time was Mystico who became the original Sin Cara but I don't think his legacy in WWE was was that great the, the guy playing Sin Cara now is really good I haven't seen him at the house shows recently um, but um, had a fantastic run in TNA had a fantastic run in Ring of Honor um, and having gone back recently because I've started to appreciate his work so much in WWE and I appreciated his work so much in New Japan I've gone back and, and looked at this guy's work again on my Ring of Honor DVDs in, in the noughties and he's really good and I was wrong about him and that's AJ Styles so AJ Styles is in my noughties team um, uh, as my as my high flyer and I'll wear about a crowbar that in a little bit but you know he did a 450 so you know, it's my decision it's my podcast stop arguing with me then who's my team captain from the noughties even though his best ever match was in 2011 um his work in Ring of Honor, his work on the independence in general, his work for a short amount of time in TNA, and then his initial work in WWE means he should absolutely be in my noughties list. Uh, and he's arguably my favourite wrestler of all time, uh, and that will be CM Punk. I, I think, I know that his summer of Punk storyline in WWE, when he won the title at Money in the Bank in, in 2011, from John Cena, I know that a lot of people talk about that, um, but the the Ring of Honor storyline where he'd admitted he, he'd signed his he signed his contract for WWE on his Ring of Honor title belt like that's a dick move um, so that all came the, the genesis of that storyline came out of Ring of Honor so um, have to choose CM Punk so CM Punk's my team captain from the naughty so my naughty's team which looks pretty sweet Brian Danielson Samoa Joe Kurt Angle AJ Styles and CM Punk now to this decade. Now this decade isn't over yet. Okay, so some of my suggestions have come about because I still think as we get towards the end of 2019 um, that these guys, if they're not already in that place yet, will be in that place. Um, so this is my team. So my technician, because I don't think there's a better wrestler on the planet right now. My technician um, and my strongman, if I wanted him to be, is Cesaro. Um, I was a big fan of Cesaro again in Ring of Honor, uh, in uh, Shikara, uh, in PWG when he was in the tag team with Chris Hero as the Kings of Wrestling. Um, but I think Cesaro is wonderful and I would still absolutely adore him to have uh, a fantastic singles run. But he's had some great singles matches during the course of this decade as well. So he's going as my technician. I still think there's more to see from him, but I still think we'll see it. Um, and he'll raise the bar wherever he goes, no pun intended. My brawler, again, you could have him as a technician because of his amateur background and his UFC stuff, um, but I'm having him as my brawler because he just kills people, and that's Brock Lesnar. Because he does. 
he just kills people with F5s. So he's going in there. Um, I mean, admittedly, it stacks it against every other person. Imagine if someone like Brock Lesnar had have rocked up to an NWA show in the 1950s. Imagine. Just imagine the reaction to someone who looked the way, looks the way he does and moves the way he does and wrestles the way he does. It'd be nuts, wouldn't it? It'd be really cool. And my big character. Lots of big characters in this decade. Loads of over-the-top characters. But the one I'm choosing is the one I think has the most natural charisma out of any wrestler on the planet. And again, thanks to him uh, first being in NXT and now being on WWE main roster, um, I, can, I can choose him. Because I would have chosen him based on his New Japan thing if it wasn't for my rules. Um, and that's Shinsuke Nakamura. I don't think anyone has that mysterious ingredient X like he does. There's something about him. There's something about his poise and his stature and, and the way he carries himself and and the way he looks and the way he walks that just makes you know he's a superstar. Even if you knew nothing about him. Even if he never spoke again in the history of his the rest of his wrestling career. You would know um, that he's a star just based on how he carries himself. You know, I know he's not necessarily in the thicker things at the minute on SmackDown, but you know, me personally, I'm hoping we get a WrestleMania, we get we get Nakamura against Styles, and then I'll be happy because it'll be brilliant. It's one of the best New Japan matches I've watched in the last few years. So Nakamura, purely because he is that mysterious ingredient X, um, so he's my big personality. Best high flyer, um, I think he's the best high flyer on the planet right now. And because he's appeared in Ring of Honor uh, consistently during the course of this year, I can choose him. And that's Will Ospreay. Um, uh, I, I would have chosen, again, if it wasn't for my rules and I was choosing people from Japan, he would have got chosen from off, off the back of that. But uh, his work in Ring of Honor and PWG uh, in the United States uh, means that I can choose him. So I am choosing him. He's wonderful. Um, he's one of the best wrestlers on the planet let alone one of the best high flyers uh, is Mr Osprey came to our last show in Manchester just to watch because um, he's not able to perform for us uh, partly uh, for complicated reasons and partly because he lost uh, a match that meant he's not allowed to so um, yeah it was um, it was nice to see him and catch up with him and, and watch him be all excited about Doug Williams in a chaos theory and stuff like that because I forget that he's still a kid and he's still excited by this stuff but Will is the best high flyer on the planet. He's one of the best high flyers to have ever lived. And he's 24 years old. So he's got to be in my team. And then um, my team captain. Now, before I was a wrestling promoter, I never would have chosen him. But now I am a wrestling promoter. I've got um, a completely different impression of him. And appreciation for everything that he does. And he's been in so many matches that I really enjoy. And he's the closest thing you get to a franchise in wrestling these days. Because there are no draws like Steve Austin and Hulk Hogan in wrestling at the minute. And this is the closest that anyone's got to being anything like that. And that's John Cena. And again, before I became a wrestling promoter, I didn't appreciate him anywhere near as much as I appreciate him now. But I don't think I could look at this decade, even though he's had long periods away from wrestling... I don't think you could look at it and knowing that he was in that match with Punk in 2011 and knowing about his matches with Kevin Owens and with AJ Styles that I couldn't put him in. So John Cena is my choice for team captain. So my team from the 10s, Cesaro, Brock Lesnar, Shinsuke Nakamura, Will Ospreay, John Cena. So remember the rules. You need a technician, a brawler, a big character, a high flyer and a team captain. You need a team from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughts and 10s. Um, the wrestlers that you choose all need to have competed to a decent level in the United States and Canada during that decade. So don't just go filling it up with hipster stuff from Europe and uh, from Europe and Japan. That's not what we're trying to do here. And then just snap what you've chosen. Uh, write in your notes on your phone. Send me a screenshot to at Jim Smallman, hashtag Tuesday Night Jaw, and let me know how you're getting on. There you go, you see. So I think it's an interesting one. Hopefully you've learned a little bit about some people you perhaps weren't that familiar with and you've probably yelled at your podcast listening device whilst you've disagreed with some of my decisions. But you know, it's my podcast. I'll get to go first. So let me know what you've chosen to do. Um, a few little plugs on the way out. Progresswrestling.com for tickets for Super Strong Style 16, Bank Holiday Weekend, May 2018. 
and Wembley, September the 30th, 2018. Come to those shows, help us sell them out. If we sell them out, it's an amazing thing for British wrestling and for independent wrestling in general. Come to them. Come, I will high-five everybody who comes to those shows. I'll hang out with you. I'm not bothered. Come to those shows. Uh, demand-progress.com for all of our on-demand content, which is all of our shows we've done over the last five and three-quarter years. Um, go and watch them all, plus loads of extra content from other friends in the independent wrestling scene. Um, Distraction Pieces Network. Check out everything on the Distraction Pieces Network. In a couple of weeks' time, uh, I go to record the Drunk Cast with Scroobius Pip uh, and everyone else on the Distraction Pieces Network. Quite terrified. Um, I'm not drinking. got a stunt drinker. He's called Jimmy Havoc. It's going to be horribly messy. He's already warned me to be the filter on him that stops him getting libeled. Nothing's going to be able to stop him. He's going to be hammered and it's going to be terrifying. Um, so, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's going to be fun. That's coming from the Distraction Pieces Network. But everything on the network's awesome and I'm super proud to be on it. So do check that out. Um, point people out this podcast as well. Rate, review, subscribe. Do all that stuff that helps me out. Um, and point people at jimsmormon.com slash tnj. Also, buy my t-shirts. I've not got loads left. I quite like to sell them. So jimsmormon.com slash tnj. Uh, go along, buy t-shirts, do all that gubbins. Uh, point people at the list of the podcasts on there because that's got you a nice handy list of how to subscribe and all that jazz. Um, and I think that's it, pretty much. Um, if you're free on Sunday, reminder, uh, my friends at Future Shock have a show in central Manchester. Uh, go along to that on Sunday if you get a chance. Uh, but apart from that, have a nice week. Hopefully I'll be back on Tuesday next week permitting various things permitting and and stuff but I'll, I'll try my best i'll always going to try and put one out every week when i can uh, i appreciate your patience this being a day late uh, i appreciate you spreading the good word about this and being nice about the podcast and uh, yeah i'll see you soon i look forward to reading all of your lists see you next week next week guys Ta-ra. imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 